term. Good. So this is Pushing Boundaries, a podcast about pioneering research, breakthrough discoveries, and unconventional ideas. I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Arbuni. My guest today is Dr. Robbie Davis Floyd, Senior Research Fellow, Department of Anthropology, University of Texas at Austin. Actually, yes. That, that's not, I, it changed. I'm now adjunct professor at the Department of Anthropology at Rice University. Oh, okay. Well, congratulations to that. And Thank you. I, you're welcome. And are you still fellow of the Society for Applied Anthropology? Yes. Wonderful. Dr. Davis Floyd, uh, may I call you Robbie? Of course. Thank you. Uh, is a medical reproductive anthropologist, international speaker, over 1,000 presentations, and researcher in transformational models in childbirth, midwifery, and obstetrics. She's author of over 80 articles, 23 encyclopedia entries, and also of a lot of books, which will take me a few minutes. Birth as an American Rite of Passage, 1992-2003, Ways of Knowing About Birth, Mothers, Midwives, Medicine, and Birth Activism, co-author of From Doctor to Healer, and The Power of Ritual, and co-editor of 12 collections, the latest of which are Birth in Eight Cultures, 2019, and Birthing Models on the Human Rights Frontier. Uh, Robbie serves as editor for the International Childbirth Initiative, senior advisor to the Council on Anthropology and Reproduction, and lead editor for the Rutledge's series, Social Science Perspectives on Childbirth and Reproduction. And that's just skimming the cream of uh, all the things that you have done in your life. Right, Robbie? Right. Right. Uh, so there are two books that you have uh, edited recently that I'm particularly interested in discussing with you. I understand that you have just finished editing Birthing Techno Sapiens, Human Technology, Co-Evolution, and the Future of Reproduction. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And also um, my three-volume series on the anthropology of obstetrics and obstetricians. The practice. the practice, maintenance, and reproduction of a biomedical profession. Right. Okay, so let's talk about the first one first. Um, uh, and, and thank you, Robbie, for taking time out from what sounds like a really busy schedule. My goodness, just overcome with all the work that you are doing. Um, this term, technosapiens, um, cannot be found in any dictionary. Can you please tell us what is meant by it? Well, we are literally co-evolving ourselves with our technology. Um, <clears throat> we're turning ourselves into cyborgs. The cyborg means cybernetic organism. And um, so we're basically co-creating ourselves as a new species, which I decided to call technosapiens because of the increasing integration of humans with technology. Well, I, I think it's a, it's a great term. Uh, so how, how you're welcome. Um, and, and so is cyborg cyborg babies, wonderful to them. Uh, how is technology impacting uh, reproduction? Massively. Hmm. Um, Take your time. 
starting from um, artificial uh, artificial reproductive technologies like IVF and surrogacy and um, um, a myriad of, of ways to conceive a baby that didn't exist before, moving all the way through pregnancy, which has become heavily technologized via the use of ultrasound. And doc, most obstetricians no longer know how to palpate bellies to uh, determine the fetal position and the fetal size. They just use ultrasound instead, but midwives have retained that skill. And um, <clears throat> the process of childbirth is replete with technologies from the IV lines that they administer as soon as you get in, um, especially um, and the administration of our synthetic oxytocin, which interferes with the normal flow of labor and uh, your own production of oxytocin, um, moving especially to the electronic fetal monitor, which is ubiquitous in hospital births in technocracies around the world and in um, highly technologized hospitals. Um, the electronic fetal monitor has become to dominate birth to the extent that one of my interlocutors said, as soon as they hooked up to me, me up to the machine, everybody started staring at it. <clears throat> and then I started, and not me, and then I started staring at it. And I got the feeling that it was having the baby instead of me. Very good. And the nurse I interviewed said, as soon as I hook the mother up to the monitor, I get the feeling that the monitor is keeping the baby's heart beating. So I'm afraid to take her off because I'm afraid the baby's heart will stop. She said, I know that's ridiculous and not at all true, but that's the emotional response that electron that electronic fetal monitoring evokes in people. So what effect do you think that has on the pregnant mother? Well, it keeps her from it depends on what the woman wants or what mm -hmm. the childbearer wants. Mm -hmm. um, I've interviewed over 165 um, childbearers. Yes. Most of them women, but some of them transgender, and um, and um, the the majority of them, around seventy percent, felt safer with the monitor. It 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 completely interferes with the natural rhythms of labor. It um, messes up the process of normal physiologic birth because it imprisons you in bed. But um, but it makes women and childbearers and their practitioners feel safe because they feel that they have control. What's a, what's ironic that because they have information about the status of the mother's contractions and the baby's heartbeat. What's ironic about that <clears throat> is that electronic fetal monitoring does not serve to, be, to make birth safer. It's been proven for over 40 years now that all it does is raise the cesarean rate because the monitor um, registers every single fetal heartbeat deceleration. You know, the heartbeat goes up and down. And fetal heart rate decelerations are absolutely normal during labor. But when you see every single one on the monitor strip on the computer, mm -hmm. it often looks like the baby is in distress when it isn't. And that leads to an unnecessary cesarean, of which we have way too many in the United States and all across the world. Right. Whereas it has been shown that intermittent auscultation, meaning listening to the baby's heartbeat through a fetoscope by an actual human, mm -hmm. doing that every 20 minutes produces much better results and does not lead to higher cesarean rates the way the electronic fetal monitor does. But we're so attached to technology 
and to the and we tend to value the information. We super value that's my invented term. We super value the information from high tech machines like the electronic fetal monitor, and we tend to devalue the information that comes from people. So, in 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 contrast to all the scientific evidence, the fetal monitor is ubiquitous in hospital births. Kind of a scary, scary scenario. Yeah, it is It is scary. Right now, if you think about it, all over the world in high-tech hospitals, there are women lying imprisoned in bed so they can be on the continuous monitoring all during their labors when, as I said, all that does is raise cesarean rates. Normal physiologic birth is about being up. It's about moving, eating, drinking at will during labor. Labor movement is the essence of a healthy labor. And, um, but that's not recognized in hospitals. Doctors, obstetricians, and obstetric nurses also rarely recognize what's called the latent phase of labor, where in the latent phase, when the uterus is just toning, that can take up to two, three days for the uterus to tone and prepare itself for labor. And active labor is defined as starting us at six centimeters of, of cervical dilation. So if you go to the hospital too early while you're still in latent labor, you get put on a clock. And if you're not dilating at one centimeter per hour, which is called Friedman's curve, now another curve is used called Zang's curve, but if you're not dilating regularly, then your labor is considered dysfunctional and your Pitocin is given to augment the strength of your contractions. Well, Pitocin makes contractions harder, stronger, and more back-to-back and then harder bears, so then you ask for an epidural. And the epidural, if given before active labor is reached at six centimeters, will slow down your labor. Then you get more Pitocin to speed it up, which makes contractions harder. Then they up your epidural to compensate for that. And eventually the baby goes into distress from too much Pitocin, and you get a cesarean section, Right. which is absolutely absurd. Right, right. I read that once you were asked by a frustrated Latin American epidemiologist, why don't obstetricians get it? We epidemiologists understand that the vast majority of what they are doing during labor and birth is just plain wrong. Lots of pediatricians do too, like cutting the umbilical cord immediately is just plain stupid. So why don't obstetricians act? according to the evidence, as we have long been insisting that they do. What's your answer to that? The answer to that is their training um, and fear. I mean, mostly, most obstetric training and practice is fear-based. Fear of lawsuits, um, fear of something going wrong with the labor. The belief is that if you can control it with technology, you and the childbearer and the baby will be safer. Mm-hmm. When in fact it's the opposite. Um, that epidemiologist was very aware of all of the studies, for example, that say that you know the the best thing to do for labor and birth is to support the normal physiologic flow of labor and birth, and not to intervene. In fact, one doctor I interviewed said the most scientific birth is the least technological birth. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but again, we apply technology to birth and. In doing so, we disrupt its normal flow. And so we ended up in the U.S. with a cesarean rate of 32 percent. 
Um, I have to give credit to U.S. obstetricians for um, keeping the cesarean rate in our country at 32% for over the last 10 years, mm-hmm. whereas in um, Greece, the cesarean rate is 65%, right. in Turkey, it's 58%, in Brazil, it's 56%. These are places where obstetricians are completely in control of birth. And we have what used to be called the global cesarean epidemic. Now it's called, I'm calling it the global cesarean pandemic mm-hmm. because it's everywhere. And it's um, it's epigenetically speaking, and I don't understand epigenetics all that well, so please don't ask me <laughs> what that is. But epigenetically speaking, um, Michelle O'Dot has warned against um, the possibility that as 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 you pass down in the family line cesarean to cesarean to cesarean, that women's bodies may eventually forget how to give birth. As we become technosapiens, <clears throat> our bodies may lose the ability to give birth. I don't think that's likely to happen, but it is certainly wrong to have. The World Health Organization says the cesarean rate should be no higher than 15%. When you get way above that, you have childbearers dying as a result of unnecessary cesareans because they carry complications. It's major surgery after all. Below 10%, women die from lack of access to cesareans. Once you get up into the 20, 30, 40, 50% range, you're you're killing women because of an excess of cesareans. Mm. So... Um, well, speaking of fear, uh, in in the three volume that you are also editing, the anthropology of obstetrics and obstetricians, um, you recently finished editing volume one, which speaks of the training, practice, fear, and transformation of obstetricians. Yes, volume one is called Obstetricians Speak on Training, Practice, Fear, and Transformation. So, what do they say about fear? They say that it has that for many of them, fear drove their practices, um, fear of liability, fear of something going wrong and it being their fault, um, fear of of um, of not being able to to serve mothers and babies appropriately, mm-hmm. fear of other staff being criticized. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of the obstetricians who wrote chapters in in our book, um, and I should mention that that book is co-edited by a, a perinatologist, a maternal fetal medicine specialist named Ashish Premkumar. And um, so a number of our chapters talk about obstetricians who make a paradigm shift. Mm-hmm. They let go of their fear and they move into an appreciation of the evidence in favor of normal physiologic birth. And they change their practices completely and give up all those routine interventions, which takes a lot of courage to let go of what you've been trained to do. And um, and they they choose to support women in having normal physiologic births. And for doing that, um, every holistic obstetrician that I know or have interviewed, and that's many of them, um, and also the ones who wrote chapters in that book, the the, the rewards they get are huge, this like wonderful satisfaction from helping women to have these joyful birth experiences, but also um, ostracism, bullying, and persecution from the obstetric establishment, from their colleagues for breaking the rules, for not doing it the way it's quote unquote supposed to be done. Right. Right. So it's really systemic 
was in obstetrics. Absolutely. So then how about transformation? How, how can we change that? Well, the transformation part are the paradigm shifts that they make mm -hmm. and the rewards they get from making those. Um, but one of our authors, um, Jasanna Cooper, talks to Dr. She's an OBGYN. She talks about how she made this paradigm shift. She had women flocking to her um, to come for her holistic nurture and care. And um, she managed to get midwives hired in her hospital. Yes. And um, the mid midwives, in fact, midwives should be the primary attendants at birth. The percentage should be 80% midwives, 80% of births should be attended by midwives and obstetricians should be reserved for the 20% of truly pathological cases that really need their expertise in pathology. Right. They have plenty of expertise in pathology, but no expertise. I mean, doctors, literally, the vast majority of obstetricians have never seen a normal physiologic birth, like ever in their entire careers. They just basically have no idea what that is or how to facilitate that. Some of them talked about going to attend home births for the first time and how incredibly challenging that was for them. They had to learn to just sit on their hands because they're trained to get there and do something. Do something, yes. 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 And they just have to kind of sit on their hands and watch the midwives attend the women who mm. whose birth unfolds naturally. And they're always shocked that, oh, my God, babies can actually be born without all this technology. What a surprise. But Jessana goes on to talk about how, um, how once she'd gotten midwives hired in her hospital, um, things would have been fantastic, except that the hospital administrator required her presence when the midwives were working. So she became completely exhausted. She, she, you know, she missed innumerable um, family events, weddings, birthday parties, graduations, because she had to always be in the hospital. So she said in her chapter very poignantly, it should be enough to have achieved what I've achieved, but it's not enough. I'm exhausted. I'm overweight. I never get any exercise. I haven't had a mammogram in years. I'm suffering from extreme burnout. I, she said, I am cracking. And she did crack. <clears throat> and she um, ended up retiring from obstetrics. Because, and other obstetricians who had similar experiences who wrote chapters in our book, when they began to crack, they would take a step back and retire for a while and then come back to obstetrics, but only doing a few bursts a month um, because the system is set up against them. It makes everything they do hard. Um, her Jessanna's hospital could easily have said, you don't have to be here with an advisor here. And then she could have had a balanced life. But because the hospital required her presence, <clears throat> it, it was their way of punishing her. For having midwives present, for having gotten midwives into the hospital. Right. So again, it's systemic, as you said. The, the system is set up against people who make such a paradigm shift. So you started uh, as an anthropologist, right? Right. Right. So how did you get from being a young anthropology student, PhD, uh, into this whole area of midwifery and obstetrics? Well, that's a great question. First, I was interested in myth, ritual, and shamanism in oh. Mexico. Uh -huh. I worked with two Mexican shamans.
shamans. One was a traditional uh, curandero healer and shaman who could is also a weather worker, trabajador del tiempo. His name was Don Lucio. Um, and he could literally call down the rain and level it out. He did rituals with his followers to give thanks for the harvest when it came in and then in the spring to ask for the harvest to be successful. And then the other shaman I studied was named Edgardo, and he was a wealthy upper-class gentleman. And he did um, uh, what's called the Gurdjieff work, um, but he also studied brujeria, sorcery, and witchcraft all over Mexico. So he combined the Gurdjieff work with his own, what I call chispa or spark of these shamanic techniques that he'd learned. So that was my, I was fascinated by these two shamans and I wrote a paper comparing them. And then I was going to go on and do my dissertation on myth, ritual, and shamanism in Mexico. I ended up writing two books about ritual with my co-author, Charles Laughlin, The Power of Ritual that you mentioned. And Mm -hmm. then the new one is an abridged version that I created called Ritual, What It Is, How It Works, and Why. And it just recently came out just like a month or two ago. And so I did carry my interest in ritual forward. But when it came time to pick a dissertation topic, by then I had had a child and she was born. My daughter Peyton was born by what I later realized was a completely unnecessary cesarean section. So in in an effort, many anthropologists end up studying what interests them personally like a lesbian anthropologist might study lesbians, Um, an anthropologist who had um, uh, an amniocentesis and got a negative, got a, you know, had had to abort the baby because it had congenital defects. Mm -hmm. She went on to study amniocentesis. Well, because of my extremely traumatic birth experience, I started asking other women about their birth experiences. And then I got fascinated. My, My question was, why? Is birth, given that birth is such an individual experience for all each of each woman that she remembers all her life, why is it treated in such standardized ways in US hospitals? Um, and so now it's time to pick a dissertation topic, right? We're back in um, like 1980, 80, around there. And I went out to lunch with my dissertation advisor and I told her about myth, ritual, and shamanism in Mexico. And then I said, but that there's this other thing that's really been nagging at me, and it's this whole question about birth. And so after I explained, she waved her hand dismissively, and she said, shamanism, shamanism, shamanism. Everybody and their dog is studying shamanism. She said, waving her hand upward, she said, you do women's things. You do birth. And I said, okay. And that was that. <laughs> that was that. That was that. That was that. So looking back then on your long and rewarding and fabulous career, uh, would you do anything different if you had to do it over again? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I, I never confined my interest solely to, to, to um, childbirth and Winfrey and obstetrics. I also studied... Um, the the history of the space program. I interviewed a lot of the pioneers of the American space program who worked for the early um, NASA when it was just forming. Yeah. I studied holistic physicians of all types. Um, <clears throat> I've been involved, but but being in the when to study the childbirth and the Wifrey, um and obstetrics, I 
had to go to a lot of midwifery conferences and I made friends and I became a speaker. So every conference that I attended to study as an anthropologist, I was also a speaker. And so I made a lot of friends in the midwifery movement and had a lot of midwives are amazing women. And I had a lot of fun and a lot of excitement traveling the world to attend and speak at midwifery conferences. And um, it was it was a blast. And um, I'm sorry, COVID put it into all that. But um, for many years, I traveled the world studying childbirth and midwifery and obstetrics and having a lot of fun with midwives at these conferences. So no, if I because I have because I've been eclectic, you know, I've been able to satisfy my curiosity about other anthropology is wonderful because it gives you once you understand how to do anthropology, how to do ethnographic fieldwork, then you can study absolutely anything that turns you on. So no, I wouldn't change a thing. Do you have any regrets? Um, only one. I never got the teaching job I dreamed of. Mm. Um, by the time I, I, my son, uh, when he was uh, in high school, he asked me not to, to make him move. He wanted to stay in Austin and go to his same, you know, graduate from the same high school with all his friends. So I didn't apply for jobs during the years when I was really, I was teaching at the university of Texas where I couldn't get hired because I'm one of their graduates. And the anthropology department there has a nepotism policy. They don't hire their own graduates. Really? So I taught part-time there as a senior lecturer for 20 years, but they literally could not hire me to be a full professor there. So then I was, when Jason graduated, I was ready to apply for, I immediately got an invitation to be a visiting professor at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. So while I was there doing this highly prestigious visiting professorship, I sent out a, um, a number of job applications for the position of associate professor mm-hmm. because I was qualified for that by them. Mm-hmm. And then by then, and everyone, every letter I sent out came back with an, um, a form letter saying, sorry, we can't give you the job. Because. But in each case, the department chair wrote a note saying, um, we, Robbie, we love your work. We'd love to hire you, but we've lost our funding for the associate level and you're overqualified to teach at the assistant level. So I just, I never got my dream job and that's my one regret. Hmm. What now, a- not getting that dream job enabled me to travel the world, as I was saying earlier. It's true. So yeah. the, that was the silver lining, but mm-hmm. the, but the sad, I would have loved to have found a home at a great university yes. and, um, yes. you know, most of my colleagues and friends in, in right. anthropology are already yes. full professors. And that's where I thought I would end up. And I didn't. And that's, that's mm-hmm. my one regret. Mm-hmm. Are your parents still alive? Oh no, gosh, I'm 70, Thomas. <laughs> my, <laughs> my mother died in 1995 and my father died in 1973. So uh, they died before you became famous. Yes. Did they appreciate at all what you were up to, what you were doing? Well, when my father died, I was only 23 years old and I was Mm. still a a student in grad school. Okay. And he was very proud of me for going to grad school. Um, by the time my mom died in 1995, I was already very well known in my field, and mm-hmm. she was proud of me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but she got she developed dementia at age 85, mm-hmm. and so um, 
you know, after that, it was kind of hard. But she she died at 87. Tell me, tell me about a peak experience in your life when you were really, really happy. A peak experience. Yes. Well, I've had many. The first one that comes to mind is when my daughter Peyton was um, a baby. She was about two weeks old. Yes. And I, she slept with us. We did the family bed thing, Mm -hmm. which was great. You could just roll. I could just roll over to breastfeed a sleeping child. But I had a bassinet in my room that had belonged to me. It was a white wicker bassinet on a little white stand. And I had this beautiful blue and white checkered lining with the rainbow inside of it. And I had dressed her in one of the nightgowns that I wore when I was a child. Uh It was a white night cotton nightgown that tied at the bottom. And I sat up, I sat up one morning and I looked down at her and for the, she was two weeks old. And for the first time in her life, she smiled. She looked her eyes open and she looked at me and she smiled. And I, it was as if the sun had burst into the room and this chorus of angels was singing. <laughs> and that was, that was probably my favorite, one of my favorite peak moments. Hmm. Another peak moment was giving a talk in Brazil at a conference um, in Fortaleza. It was the first international congress on the humanization of birth. Yes. And I was one of only five international speakers. Mm-hmm. We expected around 600 people to show up. And instead, almost 2,000 people came. <laughs> so I gave this um, this keynote speech to 5,000 people. I mean, sorry, to 2,000 people. My topic was the technocratic, humanistic, and holistic paradigms of birth and health care. And, um, and I got a standing ovation and from 2,000 people. And that was definitely a peak moment as well i can i can definitely identify with that yes 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 i can identify with that uh if you won a hundred million dollars today what would you what would you do with it oh gosh no problem <laughs> <laughs> what would you do i would immediately begin work on i would start with the u.s yes. um <clears throat> i would um Remember how I said that midwives should attend 80% of all births and obstetricians yes. should be reserved yeah. for 20%? Yes. I would um I would fund, I would pay um first of all, I would get money to pay midwifery preceptors for nurse midwives and um community midwives as well. Um I would uh, make sure that all midwives, all student midwives could go through school without paying uh tuition. Uh, we need to build our midwifery for- workforce in the U.S. So I would get, you know, I would have their tuitions paid. I would pay preceptors to mentor them. Right now, they're not paid at all. So it's often very hard for midwifery students to get preceptors. Um, <clears throat> I would fund the building and development of lots more midwifery schools for both certified nurse midwives, certified midwives, and certified professional midwives, I would completely transform the face of midwifery in the United States. And I would also promote the International Childbirth Initiative. You mentioned that I was an editor for that. Yes, I did. It's an amazing initiative. It's called the International Childbirth Initiative, 12 Steps to Safe and Respectful Mother-Baby Family Maternity Care. And it's um, currently being, the 12 steps are currently being implemented in um, in 60 sites around the world. 
um, I would use some of that money to make sure that it spreads globally, that it gets implemented in every birth site around the world because it's a template for best practice and it can be applied even in disaster zones. And those 12 steps of the ICI, they're completely evidence-based and they um, <clears throat> they are um, midwife Robin Lim and midwife Vicki Pitt-Penwell have followed all 12 steps of the ICI while doing care in disaster zones. Like for example, after the 2004 Aceh tsunami, um, Robin Lim, who won the CNN Hero of the World Hero of the Year Award in 2011, in 2004, within days after the tsunami and the earthquake had passed, um, Robin shows up in the epicenter with a team of of midwives and a couple of doctors, and they be, they caught over 1,000 babies in the next um, few months. Um, they they built a clinic. Um, called Bumi Sehat Aceh. Um, they, they, their professional midwives, um, they had a meeting and they, I, all the traditional midwives that were left, and there were only about 60 of them in this area because every family member that the Bumi Sehat midwives treated had lost an average of 12 relatives close relatives and the devastation, you know, over 400,000 people were killed in that earthquake and tsunami in the Aceh region. region. And um, so Bumi Sehat gave um, cell phones to all the traditional midwives with hand crank chargers and trained them how to use them and created a, a liaison system where the traditional midwives could call the professional midwives at the Bumi Sehat clinic for um for assistance if needed and the professional on the traditional midwives would do the home birth together um they saved countless lives with minimal equipment very low tech but highly skilled hands-on midwifery care and they followed all 12 steps of the ICI while they were doing disaster relief and the beautiful thing about Bumi Sehat is that it never leaves a disaster zone once it goes in it stays it built, they build a birth center like they did in Aceh. Their main one is located in Bali. Um, in Bali, there are a lot of volcanic eruptions and uh, also wars and refugee crises in, in Indonesia in general. So they've built a number of birthing clinics around the country in disaster zones um, so they can keep on providing continuity of care. And again, they save countless lives and their outcomes, even in the worst of circumstances, are always far better than the outcomes for the birth outcomes for the country as a whole. So I would fund them as well. I, I have a lot of, I could easily, I could spend a hundred million dollars just like that. Well, I, <laughs> and, I, lot, and then a lot more. <laughs> I hope you play the lottery so that you have a chance of winning. I don't. You don't. Well, you, I just you want still. some philanthropist to hear this and understand yeah. how important it would be for the women of the world to have midwives be supported. I would also fund trainings for obstetricians in the value of midwifery care and the importance of normal physiologic birth so that they would provide greater respect and support for midwives who provide greater respect and support for birthing people. Beautiful. Beautiful. Amen. Well, let's hope that some of them will hear this. Um, what you what would you like to be most remembered for? What would I like to be yes. most remembered for? Yeah. 
Um, gosh, I've never thought about that. <laughs> well, think about it now. <laughs> okay. I guess I would like to be remembered for my contributions to improving childbirth around the world. Mm-hmm. Because the beautiful thing about my work is that it's it has been read by numerous obstetricians. Right. It's rare and midwives. It's rare for anthropologists to have their book, their work be useful to practitioners. And mine has been very useful and very helpful to practitioners. Many have told me that reading my work is what inspired them to make a paradigm shift. That my birth, my book, Birth as an American pa- Rite of Passage showed them why they need to change. And my book from Doctor to Healer showed them how to make that change. And, um, so I've I've sort of paved the way towards transformation for I don't know hundreds possibly thousands of practitioners around the world mm-hmm. and I've gotten a lot of emails positive feedback so I guess that's what I like to be remembered for changing at least changing the practices of numerous mm-hmm. biomedical personnel and and for supporting midwives. Yeah, that's wonderful. In terms of your own life, um, what's what's the most important thing you have learned this far on your journey through life? Um, to stay grounded in every moment, not to not to not to get lost in in the frantic rush of everyday life, mm-hmm. but to live in each present moment, mm-hmm. to be. You know, it's the obvious, the Scientology phrase, be here now. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's um, For me, life is all about presence. I, I was a participant in the Gurdjieff work for many years, and I still practice that. It's about awareness. It's about living in a state of awareness, which, of course, you can't achieve all the time, but you can achieve for moments at the time. So I, I ground myself very much in this present moment. I don't rush to do i i do things you know in a in a presence it's all about presence for me being present to life with a capital l so what's your next uh your next project of course is working on that book and uh, the, the three well volumes. i finished the proofs for volume one of the obstetrician series yes and the next thing to and within a few days i'm going to receive the proofs for volume two which is called Cognition, Risk, and Responsibility in Obstetrics. And then later I'll get the proofs for Volume 3. So that will consume me for quite some months. Then I'm also co-editing um, a book to be called Traditional Midwives, Cross-Cultural Perspectives, because around the world we're losing traditional midwives rapidly. Um, and then I'll also be co-authoring a textbook called Exploring Reproduction Anthropological Perspectives. And you mentioned before we started, when we were just talking about the fact that you're also writing a personal book about your own life. Yes, it's called Robbie's Reader, Vignettes of My Magical Life. Say that, say that um, again. I'm sorry. Robbie. It's, called, it's called Robbie's Reader, Vignettes yes. of My Magical Life. Okay. And it's full of, I've had a, I've had a very magical life. And the book is full of stories. Um, I've been writing short stories for years, and I finally decided to put them all together. I was starting to go through chemotherapy, mm-hmm. and I needed an upbeat project that would keep my mind occupied while my body was suffering all these ravages. It was right. I had a tumor in my breast, yes. and um, 
So I decided to put all the stories that I've been writing for years and sticking in a folder on my computer into this book. So it was an amazing process. It took me about five months to complete it. I had to edit all the stories, write a whole bunch of new ones. It was so engaging. It gave me a lot of much needed perspectives on my life to be able to start at the beginning with my autobiography from childhood and go all the way through. Um, there's a great chapter about how my house got on fire and burned down. There's another great chapter about when Ina May Gaskin got inducted into the Countercultural Hall of Fame in Amsterdam. And uh, she invited me to come and introduce her. So I got to go to the Cannabis Cup. She was the winner of the Cannabis Cup that year. And that was quite, quite the experience um, being in Amsterdam. Ina May was the head judge um, for the best cannabis in the indica category, which is indica is the kind of marijuana that gives you an uh, intellectual high. So every day I would go to visit her. Um, I brought my fiance at the time, his name is Richard Jennings. Uh, we never got married. That's a, another story. But <clears throat> every day we would go to visit and you walk into this huge room and there's three tables for judging. Ina May was at the head of the table for Indica. And then there was the sativa table, which is an emotional high. And then the hemp table. Um, and, uh, you know, you enter this room. I don't smoke marijuana personally, just because it just usually makes me sleepy. But just to enter that huge room full of clouds of marijuana smoke was, um, was such a, well, you kind of got a little bit high, you know, just from walking into the room and, um, introducing, I admit, well, they took a bunch of us speakers out onto this Pinellas cruise, cruise. And um, and everybody on the boat except me was we were totally stoned. I mean, not me, but everybody else was totally stoned. And the boat uh, captain starts spinning the boat, and everybody and the lights of the city are spinning around, and all these stoned people are going whoa. <laughs> and I also learned a lot about the the pain of the counterculture, just like in obstetrics when you think outside the box and act outside the box, you get punished. Well, every I could feel this undercurrent of of pain and and like like fear. I'm very sensitive to people's energy, especially in large groups. And so, um, walking around the big exhibit hall where all these marijuana growers from all over the world are just are showing their their wares, um, <clears throat> I noticed these strong undercurrents of pain flowing around. So being an anthropologist, of course, I asked people where that, what was the source of that pain? Yeah. And they said, um, <clears throat> it turned out that all of them had either known, had close friends who had gone to prison for buying, selling, or just smoking marijuana, or they had gone to prison themselves for doing that. And um, that's the pain of the counterculture, what mm. it takes to go against the cultural brain. Um. I'm interested in, I, I never knew that you wrote uh, short stories, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, can you can you tell us uh, about one of your favorite short stories that you have written? What is it about? Sort of the Reader's Digest version. I'm sorry, what? Give me the Reader's Digest version of one of your short stories that you have written. Oh, okay. Let me. Yeah. Let me just grab the book and because um, that's a totally different aspect of you, non-scientific. <laughs> non well, I told you about the one about the cannabis cup. Yes. Um, 
One is about growing up with racist parents. My parents were, um, yeah. well, the chapter before that, I wrote a chapter about my dad and then a chapter about my mom. Uh-huh. And then a chapter about, it's called On Growing Up with Racist, racist Parents, Dealing with My Own Racism. Mm-hmm. And the most fundamental question in cultural anthropology, why? Mm. So that chapter asks, why were my parents racist? Why do, right. Where does racism come from? Yes. Um, why are people racist? And yes. then I had to look deep inside myself to know and realize that I had been raised to be a racist. How do I get that out of my system? Mm-hmm. You know, it mm-hmm. was, mm-hmm. and I, I, I realized that I can't. I used to have screaming fights with my parents about racism, about their racism. We had a black maid. Why could she buy the food at the store, cook the food, serve the food, but she couldn't sit down and eat it with us? Right. You know, when I was a sophomore, I was raised to think that because my ancestors had come over on the Mayflower, settled in Jamestown, signed the Declaration of Independence, co-authored the Constitution. You know, my mother belonged to all these hereditary societies. And Mm -hmm. so why, you know, so she was they raised me to be proud of my white Anglo-Saxon Protestant heritage. Right. And then when I was a sophomore in high school, I started reading about how. We white settlers had stolen land from the Native Americans, committed genocide against them, forced them to live on reservations against their will. I was 15 when I first discovered that, and I was completely horrified, appalled, you know, and I swore that I would not be racist like my parents. Mm -hmm. But then but then as I watched myself after that, it turned out that I do have racism in me. Um, I was, it's like my parents just encoded it, hardwired it into my brain. And where do I see that racism? Never when I'm interacting with actual black people, but when I'm watching TV, I'll see a black woman enter a a lovely house and I'll think, Mm -hmm. what a lovely house for a black woman to have. Mm -hmm. And then I go, holy C-R-A-P, where is that coming from you know or i'll see a black guy dressed in a really nice suit and i'll think what a nice suit for a black guy and then i'm like oh my god i'm still a racist this is horrible you know i just can't get those thoughts out of my head and so it's a very honest chapter where Mm -hmm. i'm reflecting about you know about on being raised racist trying not to be racist yes at least my children are not racist i was able to raise them not to be racist Right. For example, my daughter had my my husband was um like one thirty second Cherokee or one sixteenth Cherokee. So my daughter Peyton was only one thirty second Cherokee, but she had the, her skin would turn very very dark, extremely tan in the summers. Mm-hmm. So she I I had to put her in aftercare because I was teaching at at UT at the time, and um. <clears throat> The first day she was there, when I picked her up, she was in tears because these other white kids had discriminated against her because her skin was so brown. They thought she was Mexican or something. And so I was furious. And I went home and I started calling all these other aftercare centers. And then Peyton marches into the room with this fierce look on her face. And she says, Mom, don't worry about it. I can handle those stupid kids and their stupid racial discrimination. Huh. And she did. A, ne- a teacher told me that the next day when somebody started making comments yes. about her skin, she just rounded on them. And she said, you will not discriminate against me or anyone else. Or you will not be racist. That is not OK. All people are equal, no matter their skin color. And so from then on, she became the champion of the marginalized and bullied. 
And he, all the other kids then began to look up to her. And if she saw someone being bullied, she would march over to them and say, stop it. This mm -hmm. person has rights and you're violating them. And the bullier would stop. They were all, everybody was like, oh my God. Okay. 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 You're right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. She just, um, yeah. My kids are definitely raised not to be racist. Right. Well, we need, we need more people like that. Yes, we do. I also have a chapter um, describing my two birth experiences, my unnecessary cesarean in the hospital and my wonderful home birth four years later. Um, I had a, a, a vaginal birth after cesarean at home with two midwives and a doula in attendance. And um, <clears throat> I compare the two experiences in segments of time. That chapter is called Knowing a Tale of Two Births. And then I have a chapter on ch conscious child raising and on being a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad mom. <laughs> and I tell all these stories about when I was a terrible mom. <laughs> like, do you want to hear one of those stories? No, because we have run out of time. Uh, okay. Perhaps next time. Thank you, Robbie. Uh, it has been really delightful, wonderful, most, most interesting. Uh, let's do this again. Uh, next summer perhaps uh, when does this book come out your personal memoir the three volume series on the anthropology of obstetrics and yeah. obstetricians will be out in 2023 2023 okay well let's talk when it gets published okay and of course we can talk before that uh let yeah. me just say uh before we before we end that my guest next week will be someone that you probably know susan highsmith um, counselor, author of the first fairy tales, one to four, a series of fairy tales for unborn, newborn, and very young children designed to help parents bond with their children and children attached to their parents. So please be sure to uh, tune in. And again, thank you, Dr. Robbie Davis Floyd. Until next My time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye.